You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. Welcome to Kensington Church. Whether you're joining us in person at one of our Michigan campuses or online from anywhere, we're so glad you've chosen to spend this morning with us. I'm Andrea Gibbs, director of the internship program here. Shameless aside, applications are open for the internship program at kensingtonchurch.org interns. Have you noticed people are more energized lately, coming out of their houses? Spring is calling and we need it maybe more than in years past. The sunshine, the budding leaves, the crocuses, daffodils, birdsong, new life. Living in Michigan, we get to see all four seasons and springtime shows us new life everywhere we look after a long, dark winter. That's probably why we celebrate Easter in the spring. That transition from darkness to light, from cold to warmth, from death to life. It's fitting. The natural world around us prepares us for a deeper story, one that impacts all of humanity. This story is the one about the Savior named Jesus, who suffered and died for us, and then, then he rose up out of that grave. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, there is hope for all humanity. Hope for today's trials, hope for life after death, too. So please consider joining us for our Good Friday and Easter services here at Kensington Church, in person or online. We can't wait to share with you these special services that we've been planning for months. Reserve your free tickets at kensingtonchurch.org Easter and invite family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers to join you. One more thing. If your family plans to stream the Easter service, we have something special planned for the kids. Our rowdy, creative K-Kids team has put together a message just for them. I heard the video includes an Easter explosion and a running pineapple. This video can be found on the K-Kids and Easter web pages on Easter weekend. Let's return now to our service. Today, we're looking at the betrayal of Jesus by close friends. We're in the sixth week of Personified, which has been such a powerful series to bring us into Easter with open hearts and a new understanding of the human emotions of Jesus. Good morning, Kensington. How are you doing? Good. Go ahead and stand up with us if you want this morning.
morning, Kensington. Go ahead and have a seat for a moment. Hey, if you're joining us online, where are you? There you are. Uh, you have wandered into our Orient campus. We're so glad to have you with us this morning. Certainly glad to have all of you here today. Uh, this is definitely one of those days where I wish we had a retractable roof. Man, is it beautiful outside. Wouldn't that be awesome? Just, here comes the sun inside. It, sorry, A to D moment. But that's what I'm thinking when I'm sitting over there. We're worshiping. I'm like, retractable roof. <laughs> we see Jesus better. So glad you guys are here with us today. You have an amazing day in front of you with the band and some elements that we've created, all for one reason. We are in a series right now, the sixth week of, which will wrap up in seven weeks next week, trying to walk with Jesus in his final days up to the cross. The, the thing I love about the song that we just sang is as much the song as the timing of it, honestly. Uh, talking about the great things that God has done, and here we are two weeks away from the greatest thing that God ever did for us. That our God became a human being, a concept we call the incarnation, where somehow in this unbelievable way, the God of creation wrapped skin on himself, became fully human and fully God at the same time. And one of the things that I think we can overlook, and it's why we're doing this series, is the humanity of Jesus. That even though he was fully God, he was fully human. And you go, how is that even possible? That is the unbelievable nature of what he did to become one of us. And in his humanity, he experienced everything the way that our humanity would, including the last couple days of his life. Really, particularly the last 24 hours more than anything else, being some of the most betrayed moments of his entire life. In the last 24 hours of the life of Jesus, as we have walked with him week after week, we come now to really what's about to become his trial that will lead to his execution. And it's also the moment where so many that have cheered him on, celebrated him, and loved him will now call for his death, will hate him, and will walk away from him. And so one of the things that we want to do for the next couple of moments is just try to sit a little bit in what he may have been feeling. And, and for all the people that betrayed Jesus in the last couple hours of his life, uh, for 2,000 years, there's one face in particular that has become the face of almost all of that betrayal. And it's the face of a man named Peter. And some of you are aware of Peter's story. And for some of you, maybe this will be a refresher on his story. And for some of you, it might be the first time you've ever heard his story today. But Peter was one of Jesus, not just 12 disciples. He was one of his three closest among the 12 he was the person that eventually would spawn the entire movement of the church. He was one of Jesus' best friends, not just followers. And he was also one of the people that betrayed him, not just the most publicly, but I think even the most painfully. And so for the next few minutes, I want you to just sit and listen to the words of Peter kind of read back to us first person, both from the account of the scriptures as well as imaginatory of what it might have been that he was thinking and feeling at this last moment as well as then what it is that Jesus may have been thinking and feeling. One evening, as we were preparing for the Passover, he spoke to us with a heavy heart. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, he said. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised back to life. Never, Lord, I said. This will never happen to you. I was filled with grief, confused, angry at the thought that anything like this could happen. But he went on to say, this very night, you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. I declared, even if everyone falls away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth. Jesus answered me this very night.
Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Shortly after, I found myself in the garden, standing among a detachment of Jewish soldiers. My lord had been betrayed by Judas, and I was furious. As they stepped forward to tie his hands, rage came over me, and I drew my sword, striking the servant of the high priest and cutting off his right ear. Jesus commanded me, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? I put down my sword, and I watched as they arrested him. I followed the soldiers from a distance as they led Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. It was cold outside, and I couldn't get in the door where they'd taken him. A servant girl eventually opened the door to let me in, but she asked me, Are you one of his disciples? I am not, I replied. Next, I stood around a fire with other servants and officials. Another servant girl approached me and said, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. No, no, no. I denied it, this time with an oath. I don't even know the man. Next, another man came up to me and said, But you must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent. You can curse me if I'm lying, I said, but I don't know this man. Say something, I'm giving up on you I'll be the one if you want me to Anywhere I would have followed you Say something I'm giving up on you And I I'm feeling so small It was over my head I know nothing at all stumble and fall I'm still learning to love just starting to crawl say something I'm giving up on you I'm sorry that I Anywhere I 
appropriate to me to just start this moment. I think just going before God. So let me pray for us. Father, I just want to come before you on my knees as a reminder that you are king and I am not. That you are Lord over all creation. Also aware that with so many eyes tuned in right now, we're not all in the same place on that. And maybe some of us aren't sure what to make of you because there was a moment in our lives where we needed you to say something and it felt like you didn't. It's hard to overlook on a day like today where we're going to talk about betrayal that our world is in, in many ways, it's in a lot of painful places where there's so many of us, I think, that are asking somebody else to say something. Maybe some of us are asking our spouse, say something. Maybe some of us are looking at our kids, wishing to say something, or at our parents, or at a friend, some moment of brokenness in our own life where we wish somebody would just say something. I'm also aware, God, that around our world that has to be happening. It is happening in so many places. It's been hard for a few days to shake just the sadness even of what all of us have been inundated with in the news from the Atlanta shooting. a mom of an infant child whose life was cut down, moms with kids, my kids' ages, these people whose lives are snatched from them in a moment who have to be left right now with family members wondering maybe why you aren't saying something, maybe why others aren't saying something, maybe just left with that same question themselves, somebody say something. God, I think even of your son Jesus And I have to believe that in his humanity and in his final moments, there had to have been a point that as he looked at his closest friends who bailed on him, that he had to be wondering even of them, won't you say anything when in their silence they left the deafening tone of betrayal? 
And God, I just, I want us to sit in that place with you this morning. Not to be in a place of depression, but to be in a place of reality that you, the king of creation, placed yourself willingly into situations that you knew would lead to betrayal, that you knew would even lead to execution. Because you love us. You did it for us. You were betrayed by us for us. And I want that today you would allow us the grace to understand something new about what that means. To feel the humanity that you must have felt in that moment. And then to let your humanity inform our own humanity to know how to be who you made us to be. What to do in the moments of our own brokenness, our own betrayal. How to maybe even identify if some of those moments are moments that are betrayal towards you still from us now. But God, would you do what only you can do and meet us? Would you be the one who pastors us, who shepherds us, who does the thing that when you come around us with your fatherly arms, that you give us clarity, you give us comfort, you give us your presence. So would you do that for us this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I was thinking this last week on a morning like this and we're going to talk about betrayal. That's a tough morning. Uh, and for some of us, that may stir some things up from our past. It, it may mess into some stuff right now in our present. So oh, honest moment with you of vulnerability. I had, a, I had a moment this last week just getting ready for today. We're talking about betrayal, betrayal of close friends. Like I just got flooded with all kinds of thoughts and memories, some of which go back 10, 15 years or more that suddenly felt very raw again and very real. I just found myself having to give over to Jesus again and go, man, you, you've got to do something with this still. So I know that there was a point even this week where I thought, I don't, I don't want to do this message this week because this is just has potential to bring up some things. But I also found myself in a moment really feeling like God was inviting me to again lay some of those at his feet. And I know if I could talk to all of you, you'd probably have a similar experience. You would have either something right now that you could say is a moment of betrayal you feel like you're in the midst of that's kind of evolving even right now. Some of you could look back at a moment maybe a year ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and go, yeah, this is a thing that happened to me. And one of the things that I'm aware of with betrayal, and I think I really felt it even thinking about it this last week in my own life, is one of the things that makes betrayal worse than it already is just in and of itself is when in those unique moments with somebody that's betrayed you, you find yourself face to face. Maybe it's the moment, right? It is the moment of revelation where the betrayal was caught, or maybe it's the aftermath of it, and there's a confrontation. But those moments where you find yourself face to face, you ever had one of these moments, and they don't say anything. And you're like, say something for crying out loud. Like, justify this somehow, explain yourself somehow. And, and, or if, if it's not that they say nothing, there's also moments where they just say all the wrong things. Or, or maybe you've been in that moment. You're like, I, I was that person, and I, I said all the wrong things. Uh, I've had many of those moments. Ask my wife. I am guilty of many of those say the wrong thing moments with her over 25 years of marriage. One of which I was actually thinking about this last week goes back to probably year, help me out, honey, five, four, somewhere early on. So when I met my wife, Nicole, uh, she had never stood on a pair of skis in her life. And uh, I had kind of grown up skiing at that point. And so a friend of mine and his wife decided that we were going to plan this conference that we wanted to go to. Uh, we were going to plan the timing and the location of it to the location that was just ironically going to be in Banff, 
which is the Canadian Rockies in Canada. Uh, obviously, Canadian Rockies is Canada, Craig. Uh, and so we decided, yeah, well, let's just go there. And oh, ironically, there's Nakiska and Sunshine and Lake Louise. And so we decided this was going to be a brilliant idea, except for the fact that the three of us knew how to ski really well and not my wife. So I thought brilliantly that to prepare her for such a trip, I would get her on Mount Holly a couple of times. So we went out a few times. I got her on Mount Holly, I think, three times after that, one of which was a horrible experience. She looked at me, she said, you think I'm really ready for the Canadian Rockies? I'm like, oh, for sure, absolutely. Yeah, it's only a little bit bigger. You'll be good. Pizza. That's all you got to remember. Pizza all the way down. So we get out there, and it's, I mean, it's unbelievable. If you've never been there and seen the Canadian Rockies, just gorgeous. I mean, just perspective, uh, Nakiska, that's where they held the 88 Winter Olympics. I, I think that was the first place we went. So we're out there one day, I think it was the second day of the three days that we were going to hit different mountains, and uh, it was the biggest one we were going to be on, pretty intimidating, and again, we get up there, and, and I, I promised her, I said, listen, honey, Nick, I'm going to stay with you the whole time, this is my commitment, if you go slow, I go slow, if you go left, I go left, like, your pace, you set it, like, I'm with you all day, I promise, and I kept that promise for like 20 minutes, I was with her. And, and then me and my two friends, like Brian and his wife, Janie, we, like, we were just off. Like, we kind of we leaned back into our old philosophy, no friends on snow days. So we were, like, gone. It was horrible. And so my wife is trying to keep up, poor thing, and she's pizzaing here and there and all these runs she should not have been on. And I, I'm not kidding you. There's this one run we're going down. So it's super steep, and then it's just 90 degrees off to the left. And I get down to the bottom, and I'm smart enough at this point to realize you've got two options at the bottom of this. Go left or go over. And it's not like go over 10 feet. It's like go over to death. Probably not going to find your body. Like, you're just gone. And so I stopped, and I thought, I should, I should wait for her. And I see her, like, big pizza back and forth and back and forth. And it starts getting more narrow. And before I know it, she's just beelining down. And I had this honest moment where I stood here looking at her thinking, I'm going to watch her die. Like right in front of me, I'm going to watch her die. So I clicked out of my skis as quick as I could. And I kid you not, there was a point where I was full in the air, just dove, tackled her like a linebacker, blew her out of her skis, goggles went flying, poles went flying. It was awful. Probably bruised her spine and she's just laying on the ground. She's crying. She's upset. She's humiliated. So we, we gather that moment. We kind of, we rally together. She gets back on her skis. She starts going down again. Remember, we had to go left. So she's going down the left and there's this poor sweet old guy just staring out, taking in the scenery with his wife. And she just takes him out. Like, I mean, just plows into this poor guy. It takes him right off of his feet. He jumps up and he's like, you have no business on this mountain. She's crying. She goes, I know, he made me do it. It's just a wreck. Like the whole moment is just horrible. All these people start looking, everybody's watching. And I try to gather myself. I'm like, all right, what do I do to change this whole moment? Like, what do I do? And I thought, I'm gonna say the three things that will fix it all, the three little words. So I looked at her, I said, babe, you're embarrassing me. <laughs> Not my best moment at all. And she goes, I'm embarrassing you. I don't know what she threw at me, but it still hurts today. All I know is I picked up her skis. She told me, you're walking down. We were way up, and I did. I had to walk all the way down to the next spot we could find to get her skis back on her. I can guarantee you I did not talk my way out of that debt very quickly. So here, before we go any further, here's what I want to do. Um, I want to take a minute and just receive up our offering this morning before we dive into our scriptures, try and take a minute to really focus our hearts into that. And uh, I also want to let you know that I forgot to take up the offering in the first service, so um, they volunteered on their way out to have you just take their place and double up this service, so thank you, appreciate that. It's a joke. Um, here, here's what I want you to know about these moments that we give. 
These moments are so precious to us for so many reasons. One, it's about the mission God has called us to. But it's more than even that. It's about true, genuine trust in Jesus. That number one, what I have comes from him. And number two, when I trust it back to him, he's gonna use it in ways I never could to reach people I never will. And that's what we really believe about these moments. And so many of you are invested in Kensington and invested in the mission of the gospel here. Cannot thank you enough. Uh, If you're not, I just wanna give you the opportunity to do that. If you've never given here, I just wanna extend the opportunity and say you have the chance to be a part of something that is incredible, a mission that matters and a trust that will honestly, it will change your life. A couple ways that we do that here, you can text it in, you can use our app, or you can obviously go to our website as well. Uh, I know some of you like to do the tactile, write a check or do cash, do an envelope. We do have buckets if you'd prefer to do that on the way out the door before you leave this morning. So, but again, just thank you for your generosity and your constant trust in Jesus and support of the mission he's called us to. So again, I wanna go back to this idea that for all of us, we can look in a moment in our life that we have experienced some form of betrayal. And that sometimes the worst parts of those moments aren't even the betrayal itself. It's that face-to-face moment where either nothing is said or all the wrong things are said. And for some of us, it was a moment of a vow that was broken or a promise that wasn't kept. Maybe it was somebody talking about you behind your back and just tearing you down. Maybe it was somebody that promised to be with you at your side in the moment you needed them most. They bailed on you. For as many people are listening right now, there's probably as many examples we could give of what a moment of betrayal has looked like and does look like, even what it feels like. And I was trying to think about a moment in my own life this last week of a moment I genuinely felt what betrayal feels like. And I've got some that I could tell you about that I have been the betrayer. And I've had to make my amends and I've had to go to people and make confession. But there have been some just like you that I've experienced. And although the one I want to tell you about is a number of years removed, you might be like, you couldn't come up with a closer example to where you're at in life now. It still to this day is one of the deepest moments of betrayal I've ever felt. I was in ninth grade in high school. And I grew up in a city that was a pretty rough city. It was a broke city. It was a rough city. It was riddled with a lot of crime uh, for a number of years. I think 17 running. It was number one per capita in violence and crime in all of Michigan. Uh, And it just, it was a rough place to grow up. What I did not learn until I learned the hard way is that there were certain places in my city you just did not go unless you were genuinely looking for trouble. Uh, One of those places was ironically a place that was also like our playground growing up. We didn't have lots to do in our city. And so one of the things we did is we played at the railroad tracks. There was a whole train yard just literally at the end of my street. And some of the trains were moving and some of them were off track, like on these stationary tracks. And we just play in the rail cars. And sometimes like, this is so ridiculous. I'd, I'd I would so punish my children if they ever did this. But we would jump on the trains while they were moving and try and jump from top to top. Like, this is where we just went. What I didn't realize is that there was a certain point that you went too far back into the railroad tracks and you crossed into territory you shouldn't be. Not because they were the railroad tracks territory, but because they were just territory that people had marked off. Come here, it's not going to go well. So this one day, I'm, I'm with my buddy Marty from school, and I'm with my little brother Nick, who's four years younger. So I'm ninth grade, he's sixth grade. And I'll never forget, so we're walking along, And I see off in the distance a group of eight guys. And all of them look anywhere from 18 to 20, significantly older, but one, Dante. He was in my grade. I knew him from math class. He and I were friends in school. And I see Dante and I see this group. And for a minute, I think we should go say hi. I'm like, hey, what's up? There's Dante. But I just got this feeling in my gut. Like, I don't think I should go that direction. And Marty says to me, I think we need to get out of here. So we start trying to navigate through the rail trains and everything and get out of the the train yard. And we start noticing, like, they're, they're... 
moving in closer and closer. Like they're staying step for step with us and they're closing the distance pretty quickly and there comes a point where they're only about 50 yards away and Marty looks at me and goes, we gotta go. And he bolts, he just takes off. And I ended up later on seeing that he climbed up on top of a rail car and just flattened out and just like laid and hid. But my brother, again, sixth grade, I'm, I'm aware if I run, there's no way he's keeping up with me and I'm gonna end up leaving him behind. And so I chose not to run. And by the time I made that decision, this group was around us in a circle. And I remember looking at Dante. It was the only thing I ever said. I looked at Dante and I go, hey, what's going on? And this is the only thing Dante ever said, although he said it multiple times over the next 20 minutes. The only thing he ever said to me was, you better run. And he didn't say that no quicker than the first fist hit me in the right side of my face. And I remember, you know, if you've had that moment, the stars, and then I come back too, and then the next fist, and then the next fist, and then the next fist. And this went on for 20 relentless minutes. Every single one of them. Dante never hit me, but he stood at the side screaming at me that I needed to run because they weren't going to stop. And I do remember him saying at one point, these guys are going to kill you. You need to go. And they just kept hitting and hitting. I remember one point, two of them even picking me up and dropping me intentionally on the rail track. And my hip hurt for years as a result of that. They hit me so many times on the right side of my face, including picking up the railroad spikes and hitting me with them, that for years I had different spots on my face that I didn't have feeling in. It just felt numb. And they just kept hitting and hitting and hitting. Luckily, they were decent enough human beings that they didn't mess with my sixth-grade brother. Although I kept yelling at him, Nick, get out of here. Go home. Run away. And I'll never forget the two most visible moments, mentally and emotionally, that whole experience was when I looked at Marty and I looked at Dante, two friends, one who was hiding and one who was watching, and neither who were helping. There's a part of me that gets it. If they would have done anything, they would have become part of the beating. But these were two friends that stood by and did nothing when I genuinely, desperately needed help. But I'll also never forget, maybe even more than that, was my brother. My little pipsqueak sixth-grade brother because there was one point where as one of the guys who did most of the beating was just piling in on me, I think I was down on my knees, and my brother jumped on his back and just started with his little sixth grade frame wailing away on this guy, which probably felt like a mosquito. And I remember watching the guy just kind of grab him and go, boop, and then push him over. And I remember that was the time I yelled the most, thinking they're not going to have much more patience with Nick. And I yelled at him, go home, get out of here, run, and I'll never forget with tears in his eyes and screaming back at me, Nick said, I won't leave you. And he stayed there with me the entire time until we were finally able to get away. In the last couple of weeks of Jesus' life, some of his worst moments of betrayal and pain take place before he gets to the cross. And, and some of these moments happen in some of the same settings. And so there's certain similarities as the settings begin to overlap. But there's incredible differences, even though the settings can be the same, incredible differences of what happened and, and how, frankly, it impacts him. Uh, for example, uh, the garden where Steve took us last week. Steve Andrews, our founding pastor, was here last week. And um, love it when Steve can be here. As a matter of fact, I think even my kids would prefer Steve up here than me. Like, he's just awesome, and he did an incredible job of leading us back into the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus went to after the Last Supper with his disciples. If you've been tracking with us in the series, you know some of that has been happening. 
And in that garden, Steve took us to the moment where Jesus in this deep, deep anguish was begging God the Father to take this moment away from him, everything that was in front of him. He's like, I do not want to do this. But then Steve said, and I thought it was so good last week, he said, that's when Jesus prayed what maybe was his most important prayer ever. Not my will, but yours be done. So we're going back to that same garden today. And this is where the overlap of of scenes can happen. But from the garden, we're going to go quickly to the trial. And what's going to precede the trial is going to be betrayal. Where all 12 of Jesus' disciples are going to end up bailing on him. But two of them are going to do it in an incredibly visible way. And I think because of that, an even more painful way. And we heard it on the screen a minute ago as Peter kind of read it back to us. And we're going to go back to the same text. Because I want us to sit in it. We heard it. Now I want us to go sit in it for a minute. So Luke 22 is where we're going to be. If you have your Bibles, I want you to grab them or if you use your phone or whatever. If you don't have anything or you're like, I don't even know where to find Luke 22, that's why we put it all on the screen right now. So Luke chapter 22 begins this way, verse 47. While he, that's Jesus, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? Here's one of the things you have to remember is that Judas has been a part of the disciples that have been a part of following Jesus now for three years, maybe even three plus. So you're talking about a thousand plus days that basically every day, sun up to sun down, they have been together on the most important mission of all of humanity. I don't know if you've ever been on like a mission trip, think short-term mission trip, if you've ever been on one of those with us or another church you know, usually seven to 10 days on average. I have seen on many of those that I've been on over just seven to 10 days, you can begin complete strangers at the start, but because of the intensity of what you're a part of, by the end of it, like you're lifelong friends. This isn't seven to 10 days. This is a thousand plus days that they have sun up to sun down. They have been on the most intense, important mission of humanity. They have seen Jesus teach and preach of the kingdom of God to come. They have seen the dead come back to life, the blind be given their sight. They have seen food miraculously appear out of thin air. They have seen crowds grow in the thousands. And they have been a part of this for years with Jesus. This forms something that is so tight and beautiful when it comes to friendships and relationships. That's what Judas is betraying. And it's more than just betraying a friendship. Like, it's unthinkable that you would betray your rabbi, let alone for what he did. There's a little bit of debate about the 30 pieces of silver that Judas would have received for his betrayal and what that would translate into in today's economy. Most places you would study would tell you it's at least a couple hundred dollars. I found several places that would suggest that it was only about $185. Here's what's really interesting. Some of you, your cable bill is $185. And I was thinking this last week. The God of creation was betrayed for the price of a cable bill. And I wonder how many of us know part of the feeling that comes in a moment like that. Where some of us have been betrayed in such a way, so deep and so painful, that we've thought to ourselves, that's it? 30 pieces of silver? That's all our relationship was worth? Was that? And I think each of these coins for some of us could represent a different broken moment, a different lie, 
a different hurt, that all of which eventually add up to something incredibly painful. I think all of which eventually add up to something that becomes betrayal. And certainly the lower the pile, the easier it is to pay off. But for some of you, you know all too well what it is to stare at a pile like that that's 20, 30, 40, 50 times bigger. And that's exactly what Jesus knew. It may have only been 30 pieces of silver, but the betrayal was so much deeper than that. If you go back to Luke, this is what happens next. Verse 19, when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with a sword? They're like, hey, do you want us to go to battle? We got swords, should we fight? Peter, who's always the brash one, he doesn't wait for an answer. He doesn't ask the question. He just draws. So it says next, and one of them, we know this is Peter, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. I think what's so ironic about this story is that if you go back to the dinner, everything in the last 24 hours would seem to indicate for the most part that this is a group of men who are going to stand by Jesus through thick and thin. That this is a group of people that are really genuinely got his back and they will go with him all the way to the end. I mean, you've even got Peter here when an entire guard comes moving in who like bravados up all of a sudden. Like he's not waiting for a decision. He just pulls the sword and attacks. And I don't know if Peter had incredible aim or horrible aim, but it's definitely one of the two, right? Because if he's going for the ear, incredible. If he was going for the neck, he had bad aim. But Peter just jumps in ready immediately to defend. These aren't the people that you expect in the next couple of moments, not days or years, moments will betray you. These are the people that you would conclude, certainly these people will stand with me through thick and thin. I've got moments in my own life, just like you do, where I wish I would have stood up into something that I should have. A moment where I should have been the one to stand up, to come to somebody's aid, to step to somebody's side, to move to somebody's defense. I've got plenty of moments where I regret that I didn't do that. I have one that I'm very proud of, actually, a couple years ago that I did step into that helps me kind of understand maybe what Jesus would have felt in this moment. There was a couple years ago, I was picking up a, a coffee from Big B, and I was on my way to work, running a couple minutes late, and I'm coming out from, a, from the coffee shop, and I'm about to get in my car, and I notice that there's, in this parking lot, there's four mailboxes in a row. So you can kind of pull in with your car, pick a mailbox, and, and kind of go. And there's a mail lady in her truck parked right next to him, and she's, she's getting all of the bins out, and she's got the last one she's putting in her car. And it's big truck and roll up top. And I notice this guy, so this is all happening all while I'm walking at this point. This guy comes up to the truck, and he, he reaches out an envelope to hand to her. And she says, she starts to explain. She's like, I'm so sorry. I'm close enough I can hear the whole conversation. She says, I'm so sorry. Once I remove everything from the box, I can't take it from you. You're going to have to put it in the box. He's like, well, I need it to go out today. He's getting belligerent. He's getting loud. She says, there's nothing I can do. I'm sorry. You're going to have to put it in the box. I can't take it from you. And so now I'm at my truck, and I'm just kind of standing there. And I'm trying to debate, do I do I step into this? Is this going to get bigger? Do I say something? Do I not say anything? And so he's, he starts yelling at her. And now he's swearing at her. And you can see she's backing up into the truck, clearly getting intimidated. And so now he, there's this one point where I'm standing I'm watching, and I'm, I'm right on the cusp of thinking, do I say something? Should I go over there? I'm just hoping that he's going to shut his mouth and walk away. So, so she goes to roll the truck down, like the door to the back. And I watch him step forward and reach his hand up and stop it. And then he starts swearing at her and screaming at her louder than he had up to that point. And I'm standing there going, no, he did not. All right, I can't just watch this or let alone leave. So I walk over there, and I get there, and I haven't said anything yet. And he looks at me, and he goes, you got a problem? I'm like, I didn't. I do now. You're kind of making one for everybody in the parking lot. And he says, you just need to go back to your car. 
And so I stand there for a second, and he's still yelling at this lady, and I'm like, I can't believe he's still yelling, and I'm standing right here. So I look at him, and I said, hey, I think uh, you should probably just go back to your car. And he looks at me, and now he's not paying attention to her, and he looks straight at me, and he goes, you need to go back to your bleep bleep car now. And so then he goes back to yelling at this lady, and I'm like, all right, so this guy's not going to listen to reason. He's a hothead, and here's the only thing I know to do. I prayed really quick and said, Jesus, forgive me for what I'm about to do. And I stepped right in front of him, and he was no longer looking at her. He's looking directly at me, and I cut the two of them off. And in the loudest voice I could, with some words I won't use on this stage, I said, you better walk your behind back to your car right now, or I promise you I will manhandle you all the way back, shove you in your car, slam the door. Go home. And he looked at me. He, like, stared at me, trying to figure out if I was real or not. And he had a moment where he clearly must have assumed, I don't know if this guy's crazy or serious, but I'm going to go. So he left. My heart was like, So this lady standing in the truck looks at me. She goes, I was, like, so adrenaline charged at this point that she goes, thank you so much. I cut her off. I'm like, you're welcome. And I just, like, bolted back to my car. I get in my car, and I drove away. And I'm driving away going, I didn't even ask her how she was doing. I didn't apologize on behalf of this guy. Like, I don't know. what. I, I just left because I was like, my heart's just racing. Here's what would have been absurd. Can you imagine if I would have had that whole moment with her, defended her, and then while she's sitting back there kind of recomposing herself, I snuck around to the front and stole her purse? Because that's exactly what just happened to Jesus. You don't expect somebody who literally just stood at your side to now turn their back on you. Matter of fact, I would say that the worst form of betrayal are the people that once stood at your side that now stab you in the back. And this is exactly what Peter just did to Jesus. In the moments to come, he's going to move from this standing by him to turning against him. Here's how it starts to unfold. Back in Luke 22, we go to verse 32. It says this. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you didn't lay a hand on me. But this is your hour, when darkness reigns. And then seizing him, they led him away and took him to the house of the high priest. Peter, however, followed at a distance. And when some were there, they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, and Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him, seated there at the fire, and she looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, she, he said. A little while later, someone else said to him, you're one of them. I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And then the Lord looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the words that the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. There's so many stories in this book that are accounts of moments of men and women who followed after Jesus, accounts of Jesus' life as well. Accounts sometimes that unfold over page after page after page, some that unfold over hundreds of pages. Here's what's unbelievable to me, is that this is an account of a moment of the deepest kind of betrayal where a friendship is completely broken that develops over one page, just one. If you look in the exact same chapter, just for me, it's the column just to the left of what I just read at the end of the dinner that happened hours earlier. This is a moment Jesus had with Peter, same night. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, 
But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And watch this. Here's Simon's response. He replied to him, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you. And then he even goes further. He says, and to death. It's like, you're crazy. If you go to jail, I'm going to jail. Matter of fact, Jesus, I'll die with you. That's how committed I am to you. And what's unbelievable to me is only one page separates, I will die for you from I don't even know you. I don't know that guy. I think one of the things that's so important to do for a moment is just to sit in that place with Jesus. Like literally, just I want to sit with you in it. To sit. Because if, if we know the story, and I know many of us do, this is something we're so familiar with sometimes that what happens, the more familiar you become with certain stories in the Bible, they lose their potency. It's like you, you know it, but we lose the emotion of it. We lose the power of it. And some of us are so familiar with, yes, Peter denied him three times, and then the rooster crowed. But I, I want you to sit in the weight of what in his humanity Jesus felt in this. For me, the thing that takes me back to what he must have been feeling and kind of helps me sit in it is actually one of the verses we just read, verse 61. We'll put it up for you. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. This was at the end of the third denial. Like, think about the last 24 hours. Forget the last 1,000 days, just the last 24 hours and everything that's happened. You go back to the dinner that they've been at. I mean, what's that like for you when you go to dinner with your friends? Night out, good time, no responsibilities, no work, no kids. You're just out having fun. Like there's laughter, there's joy, there's making fun of each other, there's razzing each other. There's, oh, you remember that one time and remembering old stories? I absolutely have to believe part of that was in that dinner that evening. Not to mention the fact that this is a deeply, deeply sacred dinner as well as it celebrates one of the most sacred traditions for generations of the Hebrew people. So everything about that dinner is just such a precious moment. This was only hours earlier. And then you have the moment at the end of the dinner where Jesus, we know, gets down on his hands and knees and he washes the disciples' feet. The king of creation humbles himself to a servant and the just mind-blowing, pivoting shift that was for the disciples and understanding who Jesus was, who they were supposed to be. Like that was such a huge moment that just happened. And they just shared that together. Then there's the garden. Well, even though they fall asleep and their knuckleheads in the garden, there's still this moment where they see the intensity of Jesus and they're with him in that. And they're trying to understand what's going on. Something's changing. Something's happening. And they're living all of this together. And then there's the adrenaline rush of all the guards. Like they've all been through this together. And now all of a sudden Jesus is on trial and everybody's gone. And the only people that are in the courtyard are John, who isn't yet mentioned, and Peter. And I wonder, it's, because it says that he looked straight at Peter. So I mean, he had to scan the crowd. And I wonder before he got to even Peter's face, how many other faces did he see? Faces that a week earlier were crying Hosanna, that in a few hours will cry crucify him. How many other faces as he scanned that room to find Peter did he see that were maybe in other gatherings at other days? That their face was filled with awe and wonder, and now their face is filled with hatred, the same people. Those are the moments where you scan the room looking for somebody that will be with you that will be beside you, that will have your back. And as he scans, he comes across Peter just at the moment that Peter for the third time says, I don't know that guy. I don't know him at all. I do remember when I was at the tracks, I do remember that moment. 
certainly to a lesser degree than being betrayed as the king of eternity. But a moment where I really, really needed help. And I saw two people that were my friends that did nothing. And I promise you, the pain of that hurt more than any punch. And one of the things that I want you to know is that if you're in a moment right now yourself of some form of betrayal or loneliness or pain, Jesus really does get you. He is close to the brokenhearted. And I really believe he weeps with you because he knows exactly what it's like to be alone and to be betrayed. I was talking to a friend of mine this last week about this whole moment, and he said, you know, but at least Jesus had God the Father with him. And here's the thing, that's only true up to a moment. Because remember, because of the potency and the putrid nature of sin that Jesus took on himself, our sin, because of that, there was a moment where even God the Father had to turn his face away from Jesus. That's why if you continue to read, we know that at the cross, there's a point where in his agony, Jesus looks to the Father and cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Unless the power of the idea and the word forsaken be lost on us, here are some of the words that also help define it. Deserted, abandoned, disowned, marooned, cast off, left behind, outcast, God forsaken. Literally, at the most desperate hour of Jesus, his friends betray him and God abandons him. You might go, great, so I can rely on God maybe abandoning me too when I need him most. And here's what's so beautiful. No, here's what we need to remember. God the Father turned his face on his son so he never has to turn it on you and I. Here's what the author of Hebrews reminds us of that very reality. Chapter 13 Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Here's the complexity of this whole moment and what's happening in it. Because we could just sit in what Jesus was feeling in his humanity. And while I don't want to overlook that, I don't want to only stay there. Because his humanity should also inform our humanity about what he does for us and who he's called us to be. So here's the complexity of this moment. You have a moment where literally Jesus, the God of creation, has been abandoned by his father and betrayed by his friends. And yet equally in that moment, he is being the brother who rushed to our defense. He is being the brother who says, I am going to stand with you no matter what it costs me. He is the brother that says, I will take the punches for you. He's the brother that is literally shouting out like my little brother did, I'm going nowhere. I'm here for you. I'm here because of you. And I'm here for you. But here's the painful reality that we're all aware of. We can't rely on that with one another 100% of the time. We are broken people. And in our brokenness, we will betray and we will be betrayed at times. And so one of the things that I want to do before we wrap it up is to allow, again, the humanity of this to inform our humanity. Because I think that there are, there are steps that take place that lead to what ultimately becomes a betrayal. In other words, betrayal doesn't just happen overnight. Like Nobody wakes up one morning and goes, yeah, today's a good day to betray. Like it, it happens over a series of decisions. 
One coin after another coin after another coin is what leads to betrayal ultimately. And you see this in some of what Peter does. Particularly Peter. There are very distinct and I think clear moments of decision that Peter makes that I think can inform us of what to do in moments where we're starting to feel betrayed or where frankly moments that could hold the mirror up and reflect to us that we're starting to betray someone else. Because I think betrayal, it, it's something that grows in momentum. I, I got this new toy this last year that uh, it's called a one wheel. If you've ever heard of it, if you haven't, it's literally think one wheel on a skateboard. It's a skateboard, it's got a wheel right in the center, it's motorized, super fun, it's the only way I can snowboard in the summer. But the thing is, when you're on it and you're balancing on it, the way you make it go, there's no remote control. It's all with motion. So this is literally all I have to do to, to get it to start moving. That's it. This tiny little lean and it starts to go. I learned really quickly the first time I stepped on it, thing goes up to 16 miles an hour, don't do this or you'll end up on your face. It doesn't take a big lean, it's a little lean. I think betrayal is much like that. It's just a little lean. It starts to develop a lot of momentum. And then another lean, and another lean. The first lean that I see Peter making in this whole moment in relationship is a lean towards fear. Yeah, obviously, when the entire night began to unfold and the Roman guard comes marching in to arrest Jesus, the high priest soldiers are there, Obviously, in this moment, Peter postures up. He's all courageous for the moment, but there was, a, there was a clear time when his adrenaline wore off and what replaced his courage was fear, a moment where he thought, wait a minute, if I continue this route, I'm gonna get what he's getting. I mean, things got real, and they got real, real fast when you see Jesus drug off and start to get beat. And there was a clear moment where Peter had to make a decision, fear or love. And here's what I think is true about all of us. I don't care what the relationship breakdown is. I would argue that at the core, somewhere deep below, if you mine enough, you'll find it. At every broken relationship, you will find the presence of fear. I think that's why 1 John even writes. So this is John, one of the disciples, writes later on in the book, 1 John, perfect love casts out, you know, fear. Of all the things that John could have said, perfect love is the remedy to, drives away, casts out. He says fear. Why? Because fear will always erode relationships. And in any relational breakdown, if you mine deep enough, you will find somewhere in there is the presence of fear. And I think that fear can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. Maybe some of you have experienced it by thinking to yourself at one point or another, man, if I, if I really let you see all of who I am, the real version of me, my fear is you're not going to accept me. So the decision is I'm going to live a little guarded and withdrawn. I'm not going to be the real me to you. Or maybe you've had moments where you've thought, you know, if I tell you how you really hurt me, you're going to downplay it and blow me off. And I don't want to experience that, so I'll just hide it. I won't, I won't share what's happened. Or maybe a fear that you felt at times that if I... If I lose you, I don't know what I could do. So you become overbearing and you become controlling. There's a lot of ways. For as many people as are listening right now, we could come up with different ways where fear has a tendency to seep in and start to take control. I'll never forget years ago, a couple that sat in my office on the brink of divorce. He had had an affair. And, and, it, and it was, you know, well, he did this and well, she did this. And, and this is why you never want me to counsel you. This is my only counseling technique. I just look at you and go, well, what are you afraid of? And I remember asking this guy that and he kind of stared at me. He's like, not afraid of anything. I'm like, sure you are. Every relational breakdown begins with fear. What have you been afraid of? And this whole conversation began to happen over the next hour and a half, where at the root of it, what we found is that at one point he just started sobbing and admitted that he's never felt worthy of her love. 
And so because of that, he's always been afraid that at some point she's going to leave him. Nothing about what he says justifies what he did. But it was interesting that his fear that she would eventually leave him led to this perverted way of thinking that he thought, I'm, I'm going to go find love in case she ever bails on me. At the root of every relational breakdown, you will find to some degree or another the presence of fear. And where there is a lean towards fear, there's a lean towards our own one-page change in a relationship. I think the second lean that we see from Peter is a lean towards avoidance. Again, if you go back to the same text in Luke 22, verse 54, it said this, Then seizing him, they took him away and took him to the house of the high priest, but Peter followed at a, say it, would you? The distance. Thank you for the four of you participating. Peter followed at a distance. I think this is so interesting because what happens when you read all of the Gospels together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you read them in what is a harmony, so creating the fullest picture of this moment because all of them tell the story. And, and there's different accounts in some of them, not conflicting accounts, but harmonious accounts. So it gives you the fullest picture. There's certain details you get when you put them all together that help you understand what you don't entirely see in Luke, which is that Peter wasn't there alone. As a matter of fact, Peter wasn't even there first. John was. We know that John knew somebody inside the courtroom, basically the courtyard, and so he was able to gain access. So when Peter gets there, Peter doesn't know somebody. So John, because Peter knows John, gets Peter in. Now here's what's interesting. They're walking together in at some point, but John keeps going further. We know that John ends up at the foot of the cross. Peter stays at the fire. He, he stayed at a distance. John's not at the fire. John's right up next to Jesus literally close enough that his blood could have dripped on his face. But Peter hangs back. See, for you and I in a moment of betrayal, like we can't assess whether or not somebody is developing fear towards us. We can assess that for ourselves. But what we can start to assess for ourselves and for others, whether it's us maybe leaning towards betrayal or them leaning towards betrayal, is this moment of withdrawal. Because this is where we start to act on our fear and pull back. This is where we start to emotionally pull back. This is where we, we, we grab our phone and we decide not to answer it. We start being less available. This is where we go a different hallway through work because we don't want to walk past them. This is where we come home later and later. This is where we don't go to the family gathering because we know so-and-so is going to be there. This is where we start acting on our fear and pulling back relationally and where there is a lean towards withdrawal. I'm telling you. It's a move of momentum towards betrayal. And these are the moments where in my own life, if I have started to feel myself withdrawing, I've had to ask, what am I afraid of? And do some mining work to figure out what is going on here. I've had moments like that in my marriage. I've had moments like that in my friendships. It's also where if I've started to feel it with other people, I've had frequent times I've gone to them and said, hey, I'm feeling something. Like there's a distance here. Are we good? Are we okay? And, and sometimes it's just, yeah, we're busy. We've all got things going on. And other times I've started uncovering, oh, there's something there. And some of those times it's been an offense I've created. But when you start to feel that withdrawal, it's a sign something's wrong. And the appropriate lean is to lean into it, not to lean into further withdrawal. Here's the last one that I see Peter doing. And it's typically the only one that we give him any attention for this night, but I don't think it's the first one. It's what it culminates into. And it's denial. It's the lean towards denial. So again, if you read harmoniously in all the Gospels, you see all the details. Here's one that John includes that Luke didn't. Verse 26 of chapter 18. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? And again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, the rooster began to crow. So here's what's interesting. The last guy to confront Peter is a guy that was there. 
And I don't assume he was a Roman guard or a guard of any kind, but the guy who had his ear cut off, who was a guard, was one of his relatives. So maybe he got a hold of him. He's like, dude, bring the popcorn. It's going to be a show. You got to come see this. Whatever it was that got him there, he was there. Meaning he knows the truth of who Peter is because he firsthand saw it so he can call out the truth. And he says, you were there. And what's Peter say? Nope. I don't know that guy. And completely denies it. See, the denial is what gets the attention, but the denial is not where it began. It began with fear, it moved to withdraw, and it culminated in denial, all of which became betrayal. For you and I, this is where we start to lie to ourselves. The moment of denial for us and the breakdown of a relationship is where we begin to lie to ourselves about the reality of what's happening. And, and maybe the lie is to tell ourselves we're really the victim, and they're the villain. And we downplay the role that we had in the breakdown. Or maybe the lie is to go, you know what? Fine, I've got my role, but I, I, I'm three pieces of offense. There are 30 pieces of offense. And the thing about lying to ourselves, number one, nobody does it as good as we do. You lie to yourself better than anybody else, as do I. And you believe your lies more than anybody else. And it's true, right, we say this, that the longer you tell yourself a lie, the more you'll begin to believe it. That's not true at the start. All of us, myself included, we've had moments where we know in a relational strain we have been lying to ourselves. There's moments at the beginning where we know we're not being honest with ourselves. And yet we keep just reinforcing that lie, the denial of the truth of what really is. And when the lean is towards denial, towards what we know to actually be the truth, we're well on our way to what will ultimately become betrayal, whether from us or whether against us. And I think the truth is probably in a room this size and with as many people watching online as are, some of us are in a moment of betrayal right now. You don't have to remember back to it. You're sitting in it. Maybe it's been going on for a long time. Maybe it's your fault. Maybe it's their fault. Maybe it's both of your fault. And maybe the truth is, it will never be completely erased. Maybe it's the type of thing that will never be completely forgotten. But here's what I do really believe. We can lean differently. We can lean away from fear. We can lean away from withdrawal. We can lean away from denial. And while maybe the reality is that lean won't change everything, I do believe if we start to lean a different direction, I really believe this it can start to put some of those coins back in the bag. my mind can see 
you guys. So, yeah. So two things I want to offer to you as you walk out this morning as a way for us to continue to serve you. One is we have a prayer team in the back. It's right back here if you see the open door with the light. So go to the light. And uh, they would love to meet with you, serve you, listen to you, pray with you, encourage you however they can. The other is this. We have a team here, some of you know of this, called Celebrate Recovery. Uh, one of the taglines of Celebrate Recovery that kind of explains its mission is to help people with their habits, hurts, and hang-ups. And some of us, the reality is right now we might be feeling with some of our hang-ups that are some of these coins. Like, hey, that sounds great, and I want to lean another direction. I just don't know what the first step to take is. That's what that community is all about. It's a group of men and women trying with one another to learn how to lean a different direction with one another, how to tar- start taking the steps to put some of those coins back in the bag. And so if that could be something that maybe would serve you, if you just even want to find more information out about it, we have some people that are going to be at the hub directly out in the lobby when you walk out these doors that would love to talk to you, give you a little bit more information and let you know how to get connected. Next week, we're going to wrap up the whole series that we've been in. It'll be the seventh week. And we're going to look at a story that is not new, probably to some of us. Uh, Maybe even for most of us, we've heard of this to one degree or another, even if you have no church background. It's the moment where Jesus stands side by side with a convicted criminal, and yet he is not. But they change places. His name is Jesus. His name is Barabbas. And one goes from being chained to being free, and the other goes from being free to being chained. And what I think is so timely about the two of these moments back to back is that the reality is you've all had these moments like I've had. I've had moments where I have tried to lean different and I've started putting some of those coins back. But you can only do what you can do. And sometimes those broken moments in relationships, they just can't be repaired because it takes two people to want to bring that moment of repair about. So what do you do when you've done your part and yet there's still pain, there's still ache, and there's still brokenness? That's where the power of forgiveness is the one thing in life where we lose to win. And we're gonna look at how that happened with Jesus as he took on the chains and released Barabbas from his next week and wrap this whole series up to then walk us into Easter. So glad that you spent the morning with us today. I really do trust and hope that God has and will continue to meet with you in the days to come as a result of what I pray he stirred this morning. You were so loved, so grateful you were here. Excited to be with you next Sunday. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.